I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello. And welcome aboard the Chat Bus, the podcast miniseries where we talk with fellow travellers through the forest of films from one of the world's greatest animation studios, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm sat just behind the driver's seat. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. All aboard, Jake. All aboard. Ah. Oh. It's nice to be back. I haven't got a bus since school, really. And, well, yeah, I, I get motion sickness on buses, so this is about the the only bus that I can handle. This bus is, of course, a, a cat. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, a quite Furry scary interiors. cat. Yeah. <laughs> With a... That can slope down its side to become a door in a quite Cronenbergian way. <laughs> Yeah, we, sh- we shouldn't really be asking these questions about the cat bus, which is on the one hand one of the cutest creations Miyazaki ever made, but also horrific and terrifying and nightmare-inducing. But we're not. This isn't the cat bus, of course. This is the chat bus, <laughs> a gold star, <laughs> gold star-rated pun there for what is going to be another one of our interview mini-series where we check in on various people that we love and admire. We're going to geek out about our shared love of Studio Ghibli and also talk about what they do in their creative life and how Ghibli might relate to that. Yeah, and I suppose as as our series, mini-series have expanded over the years from the other filmmakers that we've been looking at, whether that's Satoshi Kon or Mamoru Hosoda or Cartoon Saloon, it's kind of opening up these conversations as well. So it's, it's great as we get in... Uh, artists who are kind of working in lots of different disciplines, whether that's whether that's music or video games or storytellers uh, within film, uh, just to kind of put together this patchwork of all the different inspirations that are coming in that intersect with Ghibli as well. Mm-hmm. It's all about Ghibli. It's not just in our heads. <laughs> <laughs> We're not just drawing links that aren't there. We're, we, we definitely have these people talking on record about the influence of Ghibli on their work. Anyway... We're going to start this mini-series. We don't do this very often, but we're actually going to go on the awards circuit for the first two episodes, aren't we, Jake? So this first one is kind of a light tie-in with the BAFTA 
Games Awards coming up uh, very shortly. This is a, a video game related episode speaking to two of the creator talents behind the game Sable, which is up for Best British Game at the BAFTAs this year. This is Greg Kithriotis, who's creator director at Shedworks, a game that made Sable, and Michelle Zauner, who provided the score. But of course, that's not all she does, is it, Jake? No. So people might be familiar with her under her stage name of Japanese Breakfast, uh, where she's released three albums now. Uh, So the ones from a few years ago, Psycho Pomp and Soft Sounds from Another Planet. But just last year, her third album, Jubilee, uh, kind of exploded a lot it's got uh, big high ra- rankings on the pitchfork albums of the year and at the grammys she's nominated for best new artist and best alternative album uh, so this album jubilee i absolutely love it um i really wasn't expecting an album uh to kind of intersect my loves for kind of the sounds of neutral milk hotel but also like chilled ibiza mix cds from the 90s <laughs> And there's little bits of that through there. Uh, I think it's really, really lovely. And um, there are some really poignant lyrics in there that cross over to her book, Crying in H Mart, which began uh, as an essay uh, and then transformed in this, into this amazing book that's uh, exploring her relationship to her mum as her mum's dying from cancer uh, through the Korean food that they cooked together. Uh, and it's it's brilliant and i recommend it to all our listeners but for us uh to as we explore the relationship with ghibli with these artists it's brilliant that we can get such a an amazing <laughs> kind of pot of ideas here where we've got video games we've got soundtracks we've got songs we've got books all coming together into this one conversation this is ab- absolutely amazing it's very rare that we can go away from an episode with a recommendation that crosses all media <laughs> also maybe some food recommendations may come out of this conversation as well but we should we have talked about sable in the past uh, i think on our christmas episode when we talked about some of our favorite things from the year but if anyone hasn't had a chance to play sable yet that's a big recommendation from me it's one of my favorites from last year sort of a very open world game uh, when the first sort of visuals were released online, people said that it was very Ghibli-esque, although it may be a bit more of a French, Franco-European, very minimal art style. It looks a lot like Naushka of the Valley of the Wind, or these sort of big, beautiful, but often quite barren landscapes. I'll just quickly quote from the website for the game, just to give a bit of background for what the story is, because we do talk about what's quite a minimalist story for what is quite a big exploration heavy game where you create your own experience so you guide sable through her gliding a rite of passage that will take her across vast deserts and mesmerizing landscapes capped by the remains of spaceships and ancient wonders explore the dunes on your hoverbike scale monumental ruins and encounter other nomads as you unearth mysteries long forgotten and discover who she really is behind her mask so a great story of a character going out in the world to find themselves. Yeah. What could be more ghibli than that, Jake? <laughs> well, and I said that that, that uh, Michelle's got three albums, but of course there is the Sable soundtrack as well, which I've been listening to so much. And she said that one of her favourite songs that she's ever written is on this soundtrack. And um, we'll get into that into the interview. Um, but the whole thing is brilliant. And I love that it's one of the rare instances where the full kind of long soundtrack is actually available to listen to. So many soundtracks just end up being about half an hour long or 45 minutes mm-hmm. long, and it's not the whole piece. Uh, and being able to settle into the full Sable soundtrack for 
Oh, how long is it? Uh, yeah, an hour and 36 minutes on Spotify is, is bliss. Brilliant. So plenty to listen to, to read and to play and to watch off the back already, <laughs> off the back of this intro. But first, let's listen to our chat with Michelle and Greg. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Greg, Michelle, it's such a pleasure to be speaking with you both. First of all, congratulations on incredibly creative years. <laughs> you know, Jake and I thought we'd done a lot this year, but the two of you releasing a game, novels and music and everything, just congratulations. It's such a treat to speak with you. The way we start these interviews is with one question, which is what was the first Studio Ghibli film that you watched? And Greg, I think I'll come to you first and then Michelle afterwards. Um... I think it was Spirited Away from, uh, yeah, I think I would have watched it when I was maybe 13 or 14. I'm not really sure, but um, I, I think it, I would have heard about it through actually one of your previous guests, I guess, uh, through Jonathan Ross's show. Uh, he did Japanorama on, I don't remember when it was shown, but I used to watch it when I was growing up. And uh, I'm pretty sure I would have got that information from there. So uh, I think... It was Spirited Away and then maybe Mononoke shortly after. But um, yeah, definitely sticks with you, I think, I find. Uh, yeah, it's funny you mentioned Jonathan Ross. It's like for kind of British people of a certain age, he was the gateway into Ghibli. You know, it's, you know, it's, it can't be overstated, the influence he had in that regard, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. I, re- I mean, I remember watching those shows. Re- they were on quite late at night on like BBC Three, I think, when it was still a TV channel. Um, and I mean, you didn't have iPlayer or anything, so you just would have to stay up and watch it and see whatever you got. But um, God, some ancient, but it's it, it wasn't that long ago. But um, but I remember those really vividly and remember kind of really enjoying those and and the stuff you'd find out from them. Uh, but um, yeah, and and uh, I just remember learning about Ghibli, and then yeah, asking my parents like, yeah, can we go? Can we see that one? Uh, and uh, yeah, that's such a British point of reference, uh, Michelle. I, I, what was your introduction? I'm sure it was quite different. <laughs> no, Jonathan Ross over in the states. <laughs> um, I 
The first Ghibli movie I saw was um, My Neighbor Totoro, and I think I was pretty young, like maybe seven or eight, and there was a VHS rental place called Flicks and Picks, and I just remember I would rent that movie over and over and over again, and I was just obsessed with it. I was already like kind of an anime fan, just um, having been born in Korea and going there every other summer. Like I watched a lot of anime with my cousin. I was a huge Sailor Moon fan. Uh, and so I think that just like the art style being kind of like an elevated version of that and the story being uh, so rich that that was my, my entry point. And then I just was um, in from there, just just obsessed with Studio Ghibli after uh, renting that movie over and over again and then finally buying it on VHS tape. At what point did you go deeper out from Totoro then? Because um, I know that that film was was on VHS in circulation in the States in the 90s. So a few of our American guests have talked about that. But how, at what point could you go deeper and how did you go deeper? I think I just, my mom was just like, why are you just renting the same tape over and over again? I was just like one of those movies that I was just like blown away by. I was totally obsessed with it. And so I think that probably after renting that like week after week, uh, my mom was like, maybe you should like watch another one of these like types of movies. And um, I think the next one I watched was, was Kiki's delivery service. These more kind of like geared towards children. And then it kind of felt like I was growing with Mizaki in a way of just like, uh, I feel like as the movies go on, they kind of get more mature. And it was like sort of something that I got to like kind of grow up with. Yeah. I think like those two as entry points are so good. Uh, I think it's the kind of thing that I, I wish that a, a younger version of me had access to something like Kiki's Delivery Service for like a, a 13, 14 year old. It's just such a, a lovely film to watch and to inspire and to, to teach you about kind of gray areas of emotions that a more Western Disney-fied version of life just would never touch on. Um, like the fact that Kiki's ends with her just kind of reckoning with the fact that she's always going to not always be happy or sad all the time and exist in a, a midpoint. You think, there's nothing coming out of disney that's approaching something like that at all um we 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 kind of consciously thinking of stuff like that thinking why this is good or or just kind of vibing with it and then exploring it a bit later on um i'm sure that when i was younger i was just like so enchanted by particularly in totoro like the character design and um the animation style i was just like what I was into at that time, it like checked all the boxes of uh, what um, completely in, in, enchanted me, I guess. Um, and then I, I think as I got older, I realized like how how special uh, it was to grow up with that. And uh, especially as a young girl, um, there are parts of those movies in particular that move me to tears every single time that I see them. And, and a lot of that is now just being older and recognizing that there's this nostalgic thing that had a totally different meaning for me before. But now that I'm older and like, I lost my mom, uh, seeing them go visit their mother in the hospital. And, and when uh, the mom like brushes Satsuki's hair, I just lose my shit every time that part happens in my neighbor Totoro. And uh, the part where Kiki buys a frying pan and like realizes how expensive it is like, now that I'm an adult and like, I remember being, you know, 18 or like in my early twenties, like living on my own for the first time. And just like that feeling of like 
cleaning your apartment and buying an expensive frying pan and then like falling on your bed and just feeling like so lonely and overwhelmed. Like it hit so much harder than back then when I think I was just like intrigued by the world and like uh, the, the magic in it. Absolutely. And so Greg, so it, what were you kind of consciously getting out of Spirited Away when you watched it then? Is it, I suppose Spirited Away is kind of almost like this overwhelming experience of uh, imagination all at once happening all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then as you've spent more time with these stories since those films came out, uh, what's been your trajectory with Ghibli? I think uh, growing up, I, I did watch a lot of anime and a lot of, I was kind of a bit uh, of an edgy teenager, I guess, and kind of like, uh, I think, you know, the, the Disney stuff didn't really appeal to me um, at all at that age. And I think uh, a lot of the anime I watched was a lot darker or a lot more mature. And I think my first kind of like real exposure to anime would have been when I was very young, but not really anime, which is the like animated section in Kill Bill. Um, yeah. And I, I think I was pretty young. I don't know why my parents let me watch it. I must have been like 11 or something, you know, quite, you know, too, too young to watch that film. But um, I remember that was like my first exposure to the medium or, 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 or the one that, sticks strongest well dragon ball z actually would have been but yeah the one as i was growing up that sticks strongly in my mind and then i guess the thing about ghibli was it kind of touched on or it had this facade of being kind of wholesome or disnified but then there were the, these kind of strange undercurrents to it that i think or like a darkness at the core of certain things or just things aren't as clear-cut like they're the the definitions of good and evil sometimes kind of um, blurry or or not necessarily transparent. And I think uh, that's always really appealed to me. I mean, Spirited Away, it kind of, you know, it's quite horrifying in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that sort of unset, the uneasiness, not like not the kind of really in your face uh, horror side of it, but the more uneasy unsettling kind of familiarity of elements of it has always kind of appealed to me and that sort of side of it has always appealed to me and um i think growing up you know specifically what films uh well i don't think i saw that many growing up as as i did after i'd, I'd kind of become an adult I, I think i saw spirited away mononoke nausicaa um and then in the cinema maybe i saw uh Earthsea um, <laughs> at the at the uh, the Phoenix Cinema in East Finchley. That's my local, and um, yeah, like. But then I think when I when I after I kind of graduated from university and started to look at more of the craft of it and the the you know the themes with a more mature lens, I think that's when it started to really open up to me and become more appealing, and I felt like I understood it a bit better than when I was younger. When I was younger, I took it a lot more at a surface level and yes I, I read into the smaller moments but uh but overall I found it like I don't know I just kind of like watched it for the visuals and uh wasn't really thinking too hard about the overall themes or uh or story too much but um but yeah as now as I've grown up and actually that was one of the things that I think your podcast really did was just like oh reintroduce those films to me because I'm not someone who I don't really tend to re-watch films um, I just really struggle with it so get, going back to visit Spirited Away through your podcast was something that I was like 
okay, this is really cool and like uh, and made me actually re-engage com- like completely with the with Ghibli stuff and then it being more available on Netflix now uh, just made me feel yeah like re-engage with it in the last five or six years I'd say um, and I mean just before uh, just before we started Sable uh, I was in Japan uh, on a family trip and I ended up just on my own basically um, because well we had a bit of a family emergency and my parents were meant to be with me and they went back so I was just in Japan on my own and um, uh, and I, I went to Jubilee Museum just on my own and it was kind of in between projects and I think professionally uh, I was kind of at a, a bit of a dip a bit of a low and just going there was just such a an amazing experience and I think um, you know made made me feel connected to to what they produce just uh, just because it I guess that that moment in time for me was so it was quite difficult and then seeing all that the stuff that they created and the worlds that had been built and the impact they had had kind of uh, made me feel like okay no like I want to make I want to make stuff like this like this is you know and so I think as a creator now is when it's really I've really felt engaged with uh, their stuff with their work I mean that's the power of these films that we come back to time and again and that's what's so great about talking with people about the impact of these films is that they can have such a broad inspiring influence just watching these films can can spark something um, within us uh, Michelle you, you mentioned seeing these films on VHS growing up and you know Greg went on the full pilgrimage to Japan did you did you stick with these films as you grew up and revisited them did you uh were you sticking with anime as you grow up yeah I mean I've always loved Studio Ghibli movies and I feel like being exposed to them pretty early on it's I'm just uh I feel like I've I've watched mo- most of them probably by now, and uh, yeah, they've been movies that I've I've loved and and returned to and rewatch all the time. I feel like whenever I have a bad day, I always like to put on uh, a Studio Ghibli movie because it's like it's like an adult pacifier for me. <laughs> like it's very nostalgic and uh, comforting for me to return to over and ag- over again. Yeah, that's when we were when we were in our first lockdown over here. Uh, I watched My Neighbor Totoro four times. <laughs> that's amazing. But it, it it is that calming effect, but also that kind of uh, centering feeling, I suppose. That Greg, you were alluding to with when you're when you're out there as well. There's something about these that when you're in a kind of turbulent phase of life, there is something just about watching whether it's just two girls run around with a forest spirit for 70 minutes, something just about that can just alleviate anything else that's going on. There's a lot of joy in like uncomplicated things in those films, I feel like, but it doesn't mean they're uncomplicated emotionally or as experiences or as narratives. But, you know, when, when they take a moment to just show something that is kind of, you know, uh, almost meaningless to the plot of the film, it, it makes you slow down as well, I think. And I think that's, yeah, centering, I guess, as you say. Um, and yeah, uh, I mean, they're very calm experiences and they always, or they tend to be for the most part. I mean, even even the darker ones uh, have their moments and they even, stuff like Brave of the Fireflies has, uh, has moments where it, it kind of uh, sits with its quietness and mm-hmm. uh, has that moment of reflection to it, um, I think. 
I think is quite special and especially I think you don't get in Western cinema. I mean, I don't think you even really get it in a lot of Japanese animation. They tend to uh, be more frenetic, but um, yeah. Yeah, that feels like a point to mention Sable because that's something, that sense of reflection and quietness and, and calm is one of the strongest vibes to draw from playing the game. But from early on, as soon as social media got hold of screenshots and early gameplay footage there was this sense of ghibli vibes being drawn from from it and greg i'd I'd love to know as you're making this game what are you drawing from consciously from from ghibli if anything when you're making sable um uh, i mean nausicaa's the really obvious one um i mean the the hover bike and nausicaa's kind of her her hover her craft is kind of there's some visual overlay there. Um, I wouldn't say that was actually really consciously done, but then you kind of realize after you do the drawing, you're like, oh, there's some similarity. Well, there's quite a lot of similarity here, but, you know, kind of roll with it. Um, but then I think also we looked a lot at uh, Sable as a character and compared her to uh, like Nazca, uh, Mononoke. We kind of, and even, um, yeah, like, because I think, some of the stuff that she was going through as character related. Um, and we thought about that stuff a lot and, and kind of looked at what what they did with those stories and how they told them. Um, but I think as well, just the atmosphere, the general atmosphere. I mean, one of the obvious kind of influences for us was also Mobius. Um, and I know that Miyazaki and Mobius were good friends and they, they kind of shared, uh, they shared kind of admiration for each other and I think Miyazaki talks about how he wished he'd discovered Mobius's work earlier because he would have been more influenced by it and had this kind of established style before he was introduced to it but um but I think you know with Arzak and with Nausicaa there was a kind of overlap and I think those references become circular like we were kind of one of the early inspirations for us was also Star Wars um and I know that Mobius worked on the June film with George Lucas, uh, the Trogorowski's June. So I know that that, you know, it kind of all tied together in this kind of packet of like people influencing one another in that period of time in film and comic and animation. Um, and so, but, but in terms of the Ghibli stuff we really thought about was just mostly the atmosphere and the mood and the, the emotional side of it, I'd say. And I'd say that's actually kind of the most important thing for us so you know you we can talk about like visual references and I mean we looked at the ohm and we have these kind of giant beetles in our game that were very much like kind of inspired by some of Nausicaa's stuff and um and even the in the valley of the wind the kind of architecture and the windmills and stuff like that um those were things that that were kind of reflected in some of the architecture in the game but uh I think I tie it all back to atmosphere and mood and that kind of the quietness that you sometimes get in those films uh and i think you do you definitely get in the game uh it's and i think um that's something that we're very consciously thinking about and and even just like on a production level looking at the production drawings and production process of ghibli having been there looking at the research manuals so like i have just notes on my because you can't take pictures when you're in the ghibli museum right so i just have notes on my phone that i, I was taking at the time and i can look back and look at uh, my notes about their production 
books on uh, reference books sorry for just like different types of plants and it's just a book on plants or a book on uh, rocks or a book and and I think kind of like thinking about how they approached product the art production in that way uh, uh, was was really interesting was really inspirational and um, you know it's kind of straightforward in a way but it uh, it's inspiring to to see something so amazing something that looks and try and understand the process of it and then figure out that like okay they are people and you know extremely skilled people but they have a process and they make things just like anyone else uh, yeah and that was <laughs> that was really really cool what yeah well, what what's what's so key about building that atmosphere um is the music as well and so, Michelle, I'd love to know if there's like something that is kind of so unique as Sable. What was that? What was that first brief? The first sense of an idea that you had to come back with or react to when you were first talking to Greg about it? Um, I think that because I'd never composed music for any kind of soundtrack before, this was like sort of the first project I was entering uh, where I was kind of. Um, like a like a cog in a larger creative machine, uh, which was really exciting for me. Um, but I think I was like so green and like very eager to please that I I started very early on, uh, probably before I, I should have. Uh, <laughs> I think that Daniel reached out to me in 2017 or 2018 when there were only a handful of animated GIFs and, and they were still really putting the world together and they kind of like had some kind of Google doc of just what, where they were headed. And I was on tour in Europe, I think at the time, just like so eager to get started writing based on, based on these descriptions, like in the van, like putting like synth pads together and, and creating these kinds of environments the way that I envisioned them. And then a year went by and I'd see uh, some videos of these kinds of biomes that I was responding to and realize like whether or not they fit and sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. And then another year would go by and I'd start playing these updated builds every week and really learns like what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And I think that that was sort of when the, the real work began was like becoming really immersed in this world that was actually real and, and finding what, what they needed and what I thought they needed um, fitting or not fitting. Um, so yeah, that was a really fun part of the process. I just wanted to do a good job. I wanted to keep up with <laughs> Greg and everyone like, uh, and yeah, I was just trying to do my best. I guess. But you you made a playlist. Oh yeah, on that's Spotify, it. I remember, and it was like the Sable Inspo play, and you made it public, right? So I used to like listen to it. This and it had a lot of uh, like Ghibli soundtrack yeah. stuff in it, as well as old school JRPG stuff. It had I remember, and and that was like that was cool because I'd be making stuff and then listening to some of the music you were sending through, but also the references you were listening to, and and actually the music that Michelle delivered for the first trailer was. Uh, it was a big, big deal for us. It was kind of like, uh, uh, we need to match the standard set here. Uh, we need to deliver a game to match the music. And that was, yeah, it was like, oh shit. Uh, as soon as we got it, it was like, oh God. Um, but no, I think um, we, yeah, it was, it, was, it was really cool. And I mean, one of the big references we talked about on a implementation side in terms of the music, like kind of 
less how the music would sound on an album, but more how it's going to sound in the game, which was always, you know, the kind of primary design focus of everything that we did. Um, one of the key references was actually Breath of the Wild, which I would say to me is like uh, the best Ghibli video game there is out there, I think. Uh, it really kind of captures that mood so well, better than any of the Nino Kuni stuff or uh, other games they've been involved with. Um, and yeah, so so the kind of, um, we looked a lot at like Japanese ambient music um, and that feeling of uh, like the kind of implementation that you get and silence and sound design being as big a part of the soundtrack as uh, as the music being there as well, that kind of negative space and positive space, right? So, but I don't know if you've done much of that, Michelle, before. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you've done a game before, you've you had them. Yeah, but they were, um, they were MIDI versions of songs that already existed. And actually it was like, the game was responding to the music instead of the other way around. So this was definitely uh, my first experience with that. I definitely remember um, turning to a lot of Joe Hisayashi's scores uh, and to reference, particularly for songs like Glider and Better the Mask, because it was kind of early on in the game, especially for Glider, before I think that um, I really understood what the narrative was um and and i knew that uh i wanted to get started because pretty early on craig and daniel uh mentioned that they they wanted to have this big musical moment where you're leaving uh the camp mm -hmm. and and a song with vocals and lyrics comes in and you know it was difficult because i had no idea what the words should say or what they should be typically with Japanese breakfast songs they're they're very personal songs and they have very specific detail or a little kind of inside jokes from my life and knowing kind of still very little about the narrative I had to kind of um I I remember specifically I think uh looking at you know Ghibli themes that have lyrics and like how broad they are and how how much they have to do with the narrative and and tried to figure out how to integrate that and that was a really big part of Sable that was new and exciting for me was getting to come up with something that felt um, very broad and very universal and um, had these kinds of like coming of age type of themes and that was pretty much uh, all I really had to go off of initially and then I knew that you were going to have um, I don't even know if it was called like a gliding ceremony when we when I wrote it like I think that that kind of term was sort of new and so I yeah I think yeah I think we talked about the glider but maybe whether she was the glider or the bike was the glider or I don't know maybe not <laughs> yeah I, I mean I knew that you had this ability to like float um yeah maybe that was it and yeah. I think that I was just like I'll do something on that and it'll be uh I knew that it was a coming of age story and I knew that you had this ability to float and so that was kind of like all I really had to go off of for the lyrics for Glider uh and so it was fun to just like I don't know. Like, I feel like a lot of these like uh, Ghibli themes are, are very, very broad and very, very loosely related to the narrative. And it's uh, it was interesting to kind of try to figure out how to incorporate that uh, into the theme. Yeah. The, the thinking about, as you said, Greg, how a game like Breath of the Wild and particularly Sable are perhaps the best Ghibli games we can ever get. And it is 
an, a, a conflict, a thematic conflict at the heart of Miyazaki's films in particular is that he's a pacifist who loves tanks and planes. And the way that that's played out in something like Sable is there's no conflict. There's no action. And talking yeah. with Jake and Steph, um, we had an episode last year where lockdown, Jake and Steph sunk hundreds of hours into Breath of the Wild and just exploring an open space and how that it captures an aspect of Ghibli's films like Kiki's Delivery Service where you're going out into the world, discovering yourself, discovering the world around you. It's just a shame that we have to also fight all these monsters as well when we're doing it. And <laughs> Sable takes that one further by taking that out of it. And I suppose that... Can you talk us through the process of creating this great open world game, taking out the conflict? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's funny because from the outside, it probably looks like taking out. But for us, it was not adding it in. <laughs> um, so we, I mean, just, just on a production level, doing combat is very complicated. But it's kind of a bold step as well, because what do you do? Um, and it was a constant question we'd get, like, where's the peril? Where's the the kind of uh danger and uh we we would just say yeah you know well you know it's narrative it's narrative it's in the narrative but we didn't have a specific narrative at the time so uh you know maybe i don't think we sounded very convincing to people but um but no i think the biggest thing for us is just being in the world right like go taking people to a place and spending time in that world and having moments of kind of banality of nothingness of, of peacefulness of of everyday life and i mean i think that's where all the best world building gets done uh is when you show people in extraordinary places doing ordinary things and 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 you kind of get that idea of like what is different about who they are i mean even even when you visit another country you know like going to the local supermarket sometimes like the most fun telling aspect of that experience because you're seeing something that you you directly compare to your life um or where you live um and you're able to kind of compare and contrast that and i think with world building a lot of the time that tends to be where i i, I find the interest and i think that's what we're trying to do with the, the entire world of sable so we had these kind of extraordinary moments these ships these you know uh, fantastical environments um and then we tried to contrast that with the people who live in the world and and their kind of day-to-day -day life and and you know these extraordinary things are maybe slightly less extraordinary to them like driving a hover bike isn't is, is something that people do um whereas if you saw that in the streets of london you'd probably be a bit uh intrigued i'd say um so yeah it's and i think uh I think that's a lot of what they do in Ghibli films. I think actually that is a, a big feature of them. Um, you know, you look at something like Kiki's Delivery Service, uh, you know, the kind of embracing the banality of, you know, it's just someone delivering, delivering stuff, uh, but she happens to be a witch uh, and she happens to fly a broom and, and, you know, kind of exploring that in a, in a more mundane circumstance, I think is, is, is something that we look to do. And the same with Spirited Away even, you know, you, they go to another world, but that world, it's a, it's a, you know, a bathhouse. And it's a, again, a, a, you know, a pretty ordinary thing in reality, but, um, but in an extraordinary world. And I think those are the aspects that we really try to explore. And I think combat 
wasn't something we felt was super familiar to our day-to-day lives. Um, I don't get into random encounters with people <laughs> on the streets of London that often, occasionally, but not all the time. And um, yeah, so that was something we decided to explore there. Um, and, and I mean, yeah, the lack of combat, you know, we basically, because it's such a small studio, uh, we have to really embrace our limitations. Um, so every aspect of world building or game design we do, we do in looking at, okay, what can we feasibly do and how do we kind of design this? And, you know, like the masks, for example, are a big part of the culture of the game, but that was largely in part because I didn't want to or wasn't capable of animating faces in a way that I felt would reach the standard. So it's just like, okay, well, let's give people masks and tie that into mm. the world building. So, um, yeah. Well, and, and it's good that you did because the masks lead to Michelle writing what I think is her favorite song of all her, of all her songs, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that song doesn't get enough credit. <laughs> it is one of my favorite songs. I mean, I think that there's almost like a Mr. Rogers type of quality to, to the lyrics of that song. And it's the first time that I've like tackled a string arrangement on my own. It's the first time I think I've written a, a, a pretty beautiful piano composition and it's simultaneously like lush but simple and I just love the lyrics of that song. I mean, I, I, and again, it, it, it was part of just like, how do I make this very broad song about coming of age uh, fit this narrative? Um, and I just, you know, the, the, I think it's very funny that the song starts with something happens every day, <laughs> whether or not you pause or whether or not you wait. And, you know, in my mind, Sable is a game about like, you know, making decisions. And this, I don't, I don't know how Greg feels about this. And I'm, I'm always hesitant to talk about it because, you know, it's not, my narrative, but I, I feel like that this game has always felt the most similar to Kiki's delivery service to me, because in a way Sable is this character that's leaving her home uh, and meeting all these people and figuring out like what her craft is. You know, she's meeting all of these different clans and discovering their class, the, what their craft is and all of their quests are sort of associated with their crafts. And she's deciding which uh, clan she wants to join, which masks she wants to wear which just sort of remind, has always reminded me of Kiki's delivery service because it's a young girl leaving home at a young age, maybe before she's really ready and, and uh, figuring out what her skill is. Um, and so I've always, that, that movie for me was a, a big reference point when I was thinking about the lyrics that I was writing for Jane. And you know, anyone who says that this, where are the stakes? I mean, what bigger challenge is there in our lives than deciding where we'll land, what craft or job we'll choose what our calling is and I suppose Greg that's sort of what you're talking about with the sort of mixture of complexity and simplicity of, of a Miyazaki film where you know I, I imagine the Nino Kuni approach to a Ghibli video game is to have lots of JRPG style storytelling and structures on top of it where maybe it's truer to it to just have that simplicity of theme and journey and discovery. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Well, I think there's a there's a real through line between uh, Sable Ghibli and then Michelle, your book as well about this focus on details and processes as a way of kind of grounding people within a reality, and that like, even if it could be it could be a totally alien world, but the thing that's going to uh, kind of make you really believe in it is your interactions with your everyday people and like the troubles that they're having with their hover bike or whatever it might be. Um, 
and the same goes with crying in h mark the thing that i i love about the book michelle is the processes that you guide people through um i think there is a kind of a, a approach to food in a lot of media where it might kind of get put up on a pedestal and presented as this unachievable thing that's glorious and glamorous and uh it's a it's the salt bay salt uh steak covered in gold approach <laughs> and this is absolutely not that and i love that when you're writing about food you're writing about all the steps that it takes to arrive at the end process and so like the sections in the book where you are kind of arriving into like a new apartment and it's the new kitchen and the things that you have to gather to assemble that space and the three hours that you spend watching youtube videos to guide you through a certain recipe uh i I, which i I absolutely love and because i think my a line that i really loved in the book was when you you said i i remember these things clearly because that was how my mother loved you and this idea of food as an act of love and that's something that we see in Ghibli as well like they're they're not just about the end product it's about the processes that get you there and how you end up with this beautiful ramen bowl in Ponyo it's the magic is everything that comes before it it's not just the thing that comes at the end yeah I actually had a line in the book um that got taken out because I think it just was too I, I don't know referential or something but um I there was a, a long passage about comparing the first meal I, I ate after my mother's funeral um, to when Chihiro eats the rice ball and spirited away and has these huge fat tears coming out because that was certainly what I was thinking of. And um, yeah, I, I mean, for me, like I, it felt like I couldn't uh, release this emotion in a way because maybe I was like so depleted. I had lost all this weight and uh, my energy was so limited that I needed to have this huge meal in order to like have the energy to like let loose and, and cry. Um, and that scene in, in Spirited Away is so moving to me. I get so emotional every time I see it because you're, you're not sure if she's crying because someone has finally helped her uh, or if that she if this, this food has like finally given her the energy uh, to release these emotions of like what she has just witnessed and is very shocking to deal with or if that food has like some kind of magical power that's like like releasing these like very oversized tears um but yeah there used to be a big section in my book talking about that moment I ended up taking it out because I just thought you know uh, maybe there will be like middle-aged women that won't know this reference or something um but yeah I, I always think about that scene and I think that Ghibli does a really beautiful job with a lot of a a lot of the most memorable parts of of Ghibli movies for me are always like the beautiful food and even the like tin of candies and and grave of fireflies and yeah I feel like there's always like really really beautiful detail in in the food that they eat oh yeah absolutely and Kiki's delivery service going back to that like that's that's just full of those lovely moments and like you mentioned about that, that it's a film about going out and just having to fend for yourself that feeling of arriving in a new place like maybe as a student or something and you you, you don't really know how to cook anything and it's like all we're going to have to eat is pancakes forever <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a it's a really lovely read um but i'd would love to ask you about other um other anime and video game influences that might be creeping into both of these works uh, or any other work that you do as well so like michelle the first track on the new album is paprika uh is that that's satoshi Kon right there uh anything else that's circling the uh what you're consuming um gosh uh there 
there were like some you know in the early recordings of psychopomp there are like some anime samples like i think that we for jane come i think that we used um a sample from serial experiments lane and certainly a lot of the music videos that i make are pretty heavily influenced by uh different anime akira and cowboy bebop and uh yeah those i definitely have always been pretty heavily influenced by anime and video games and, and most of the visual stuff that i've done yeah this feeds in pretty well to like the final question we ask all our guests which we would like to put them on the spot so apologies for doing so although greg might have heard previous episodes along these lines so we might be prepared where when we started this podcast jake had seen no ghibli films and i said i'm going to show you all the ghibli films and when we got to the end of that we decided to go to Toshikon next mm. and then Cartoon Saloon after that. And so now we're just always looking for the next trip to take him on. And Michelle, it, it could be anime. It could be anything, really. We could we could go on a JRPG journey next or whatever. But where should we take Jake next after 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 this journey? Um... God, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that I've talked about this in a lot of interviews, uh, mostly involving Sable. But um, for me, I think that the first uh, video game that I played uh, that really moved me was the Super Nintendo RPG called Secret of Mana. And it's one of the few um, two player RPGs, which is, I think, I really hope that uh, more of those uh like come into this world because I think it's such an amazing journey to get to share with a friend or in in my case it was my dad and I would you know travel all these different worlds together and at the end you feel like you've really accomplished something or there's this closeness this type of this particular type of bonding that I think is really special and um, I feel like that was one of the first games that I played that I really um, recognized what video games power could be um in in just like the art style and the music and the character design and the narrative uh i was i was deeply impacted by that and it's still one of my favorite games of all time and i think that would be fun for you you two to get to play together oh we need to be in the same room to do that that would be amazing (laughs) oh the sound the soundtrack for secret of manor is something else that's an incredible one and greg it would be obvious for you to recommend a game to us maybe but if it's a game or a filmmaker or a series that we should go down what would you recommend we do next uh a game maker i mean there, there are obviously extremely legendary ones like uh, uh but actually i think uh, i'm trying to think of one that's not too uh obscure and <laughs> like uh, immediately i'm going to like dark souls like the miyazaki games like those but they're quite they're quite tricky but they have incredible incredible worlds and actually really inspired by uh berserk mm-hmm. uh the miura uh, uh manga series um so i was thinking of that but it's quite uh that they're, they're not accessible uh video games i'll put it that way um so i mean in terms of yeah the more the more kind of i mean i always just love the setup of uh Final Fantasy games, but specifically, uh, I think the earlier ones up to about nine or ten. Um, but I think the three, the th- I I just think the setups are always amazing in those games. Uh, just the 
the, the uh, you know, the, the, the openings of them even. I, I mean, I just think they're worth, worth looking at just for the openings. I think they're fantastic. But um, Final Fantasy games, there's a lot of them. So I would try and like uh, keep, keep yourself some limit there. But I think, yeah. I mean, it's hard with video games to talk about authorship because they get made by such a big group of people. Um, and I guess, you have, I, I guess the biggest auteurs are probably like Kojima or Miyamoto. And you could maybe look, Miyamoto's games are obviously, uh, I think there's some analogue in terms of the time period that he got started making games, but also his inspirations and what Miyazaki has kind of done as well. The, the narratives are maybe slightly different, but if you look at, you know, his inspiration for The Legend of Zelda was uh, a lot to do with his own adventures as a child in the forests of Japan. Um, and obviously age-wise and culturally and historically they come from such similar backgrounds so i think there's a kind of interesting parallels and a, uh worth worth investigating there and and i think there have been you know uh retrospectives on the process of those creations so i'd be really interested to hear someone a guy i don't know but i'd love to hear someone do a do a really in-depth uh look at Look at those games. Uh, so if you if you're going to do that, I'd, I'd Miyamoto. Just, I I yeah. I found a Rolling Stone profile of Miyamoto from the early '90s where it says that two of his closest friends are Miyazaki and Paul McCartney. And considering that the amount okay. of time time recently that Jake and I have been talking about Ghibli and Beatles, that, that feels like the perfect crossover. What do those three guys talk about? <laughs> what does that dinner table look like? <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> I can't imagine at all that yeah that sounds like it's going to be like an off off broadway play in three years time and like imagine an imagined meeting between these three people that sounds great yeah brilliant that. thanks so much guys it's been an absolute pleasure talking chiefly with you both thank you thank you so much for having us yeah thanks for having us Thank you so much to Greg and Michelle for joining us on this first episode of the Chatbus mini-series talking about Sable and so much more. What an amazing chat. Oh yeah, so good. And so good to have people from such different disciplines coming together to talk about the way that Ghibli influences and kind of filters into the art that people do in so many different ways. Um and God, yeah, just go and listen to all the Japanese breakfast albums, listen to the Sable soundtrack, go and read Crying in H Mark, go and play Sable. What a what an episode for recommendations. And that's on top of the recommendations that they then gave to us as well. <laughs> yeah, we love a good reading list at the end of an episode. Now we have a reading, playing, listening <laughs> list. And one last thing, good luck to the team behind Sable at the BAFTA Games Awards on the 7th of April. We're rooting for you. Absolutely. And so big thanks to them, but there are lots of other people that need a thanks in this episode, aren't there, Michael? Absolutely. We have our first raft of Patreon backers that we want to thank. Should we go through this list, Jake? Let's do it. Yeah, thank Should you so much. Should we duet it? To... <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait, who, who's John and Paul, do you think? Um, well, I think it's more likely we're George and Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, there's still some good songs. I mean, is our podcast the octopus's garden of the podcast landscape? 
Um, it, I, yes, I well, let's not get too Beatly right now, but the best Beatles solo song could be Photograph, which is which George Harrison wrote for Ringo Starr. Too, too controversial, <laughs> controversial for an outro. <laughs> let's get back to it. The main event, of course, thanking our patrons so kindly donating to the Ghibli Tech cause and helping us keep this show going. Uh, yeah, really, really huge thanks for doing this. And uh, well, let's get stuck into it. So first off, thank you, Cinematic Universe. Thank you, Joe Cunningham. Thank you, John Grieve. Thank you, Colin Heath. Thank you, Nitan Kaler. Thanks to David Cox. Thank you, Michael James Jones. Thank you, Michael Charbonneau. Thank you, Gary Eid. Thanks, Jens Olsen. Thank you, Grace Hebditch. Thank you, David Mankins. Thank you, Eve Grasset. Thank you, Stella. Thank you, Opalescent. Thank you to Sam Clements. Thank you, Hugh Conlon. Cheers to Anthony Sebastian. And thank you to Re underscore Koo. <laughs> Thanks to Jamie Maisner. Thank you to Just Daniel. Thank you to Jonathan Hugh Keys. Thank you to Dave Lynette. Thanks to Michael Eckert. And thank you to Sean Geraghty. And that is a big, big, big thank you to all of you for joining us over on the Patreon. Uh, it's been brilliant having these conversations about Ghibli with you in the Discord as well. And not just Ghibli, so much more <laughs> that we're talking about too. The Discord has really picked up what a, what a lively place that is. Lively and putting us to shame. I know I like to post uh, pictures of my Ghibli bookshelf um uh, as i add books to it on on our social media accounts but uh, already that's been put completely into the shadow by some of the bookcases <laughs> <laughs> that we've seen <laughs> some collections absolutely you know yeah putting me in the shade yeah so if you want to join in that conversation and help out shaping what we're doing on the podcast in the future as well as getting access to our bonus library cafe episodes including a massive michael nerd out on the batman uh, then make sure you head to patreon.com slash ghibliotech. But you can keep up with this in other ways as well, can't you, Michael? Absolutely. We are on Twitter at ghibliotech. We're on Instagram, ghibliotech.pod. And you can also catch up with us individually. Steph is underscore Steph Watts. Jake is Jake H. Cunningham. And Michael is Michael J. Leader. Next week, we have an episode we're very excited about with the team behind the history-making animated documentary Fully, which this year was nominated for three Oscars, Best Animated Feature, Best Foreign Language Film, and Best Documentary. We'll see you then. Ghibliotech is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ick.